We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Matt Kibbe. Matt is president and CEO of FreedomWorks and the author of the new book, Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. Matt, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Hey, it's good to be with you. So before we get into the book, for people who don't know, can you tell them a little bit about what Freedom FreedomWorks is and what you do there? Sure. So if you think about FreedomWorks as a, a community organizing machine for those people that believe in lower taxes, uh, limited government, and more individual freedom, um, we we try to organize people on the ground. We, we work a lot with social media to make sure that, that people understand the pr- principles of liberty. And the, the premise is that um, government goes to those who show up. And if, if people that believe in freedom don't stand up to defend it, all of the insiders and the people that want uh, a special favor or, or a handout from Washington, they'll control the process. And that's, you know, that's clearly how we've gotten into the mess that we're in today is that, that people that believe in liberty haven't taken the time to reign in Washington. So there were two things about your book that uh, jumped out at me. One is that you have a great story about how you got interested in free market ideas via Ayn Rand, via the band Rush. Um, so I'd love if you could quickly talk about that a little bit. But more importantly, for our purposes, um, one of the things that I'm focused on is the campaign that I call ending the debt draft, which means ending the welfare state programs that are drafting young Americans, conscripting them and having them to pay for other people's retirement and healthcare needs rather than allowing them to actually start building a life for themselves, saving, investing, buying a house, starting a family. And you actually uh, make the same kind of parallel between the military draft and between what's happening to young people today uh, thanks to the welfare state. In fact, you have a whole chapter about this, chapter five in your book. And so I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that problem as you see it. Sure. I think that the natural problem in Washington, D.C., and and Nobel laureate economist James Buchanan um, pointed this out quite some time ago, is is that democracies naturally um, spend more money than they have. That the political process is all about uh, buying re-election and uh, uh, expanding your power base. If you're a bureaucrat, and you know, public choice economists call that the you know the dismal science of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. It's a fancy way of saying that uh, um, politicians love to buy re-election and bureaucrats love to expand their budgets. And the problem with that is there's a lot of problems with that, but um, at some point, there's only so much new money that you can tax, and and so you you stop taxing, and you start borrowing, and you know there may be some limit to how much money we can actually borrow. The federal government can borrow from China, and you know another form of debt is is the way we debase our currency, and and we all know now that there's you know trillions of dollars of of toxic uh, uh, red ink in the Federal Reserve's 
balance sheet as well. Um, but all of it is naturally shifted on the, onto the backs of, of people that can't show up and defend themselves, young people, future generations. And so, uh, you know, a lot of us have called this generational theft, but it's so much easier to kick the can down the road and, and voice that, that burden onto to someone that, that's not even there, cannot defend it. And young people today find themselves in this situation. You know, uh, one of the subtitles in my chapter about young people is it sucks to be young today because not only are you inheriting all of the debt that the government has already accrued, all of the unfunded liabilities in Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, um, you now have to pay for a mandated benefit called Obamacare that explicitly transfers money away from young, less wealthy people, more healthy people, to um, older, more wealthy, less healthy people. It's an explicit wealth transfer, and it's kind of a reverse Robin Hood scheme, uh, again, shifting shifting a lot of uh, burdens of big government onto the backs of, of probably the least potent political constituency. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, it's not that young people are never engaged. For instance, I mean, we've seen whether it's, you know, environmentalism or the gay marriage uh, debate, young people do get very engaged if they see the issue as deeply meaningful to them. Why, given what the effect of these programs are for their future, don't you think they're getting involved on these issues? Well, I think part of it's uh, a knowledge problem. Um, it's it's hard to find out what's actually going on and, and how how these types of policies affect young people. And that's always been the advantage of, of insiders in Washington, D.C. They, they typically do these things, and you won't find out how Obamacare works until far after, long after it's been implemented, and, and you're, you're sort of stuck in a situation where there's virtually nothing you can do about it. I do think that that dynamic is fundamentally changing um, with social media and the Internet. It's, it's, it's spreading... Um, good ideas. It's it's allowing it's lowering barriers to entry for people that want to know what the what's going on in the Senate floor. It's it's allowing people to do the numbers for themselves. So I think you're seeing um, a a new insurgency coming from young people. Um, a very a very libertarian trend. Um, a more a, a better read a better educated um, constituency of young people because traditionally. Um, you know, the, the data backs up the fact that young people have not shown up to vote, um, certainly not at the same percentages that retirees have. And that's been, the, you know, the, the probably one of the drivers of, of, of the welfare state, particularly when it comes to Medicare and Social Security. But that is changing. And, it, and I, I should add, that's the whole reason I tell the story about how I discovered liberty um, from reading, reading the liner notes on a Rush album called 2112 is the, the fact that, you know, back then you had to work really hard and, and you had to have a little bit of luck and, and run into the right people or perhaps pick up the right book to discover the ideas. Um, and, of course, that, that album from, from Rush was dedicated to the genius of Ayn Rand. And I was 13 years old and I had no idea who Ayn Rand was, but the name stuck in my head. And, you know, some months later, I stumbled a, cro a, cop a copy of her book, Anthem, 
and, and an old uh, beat up earmarked copy of Anthem. And of course, like like so many of your listeners would recognize this story. Once I read, once I started reading that book, I couldn't put it down. I devoured it, and I immediately set out to find her other books. I chuckle now because at the time, this this copy of Anthem was so old that it didn't mention Atlas Shrugged as another as another book that had been written by Ayn Rand. So I set out to find the Fountainhead. And in the days of bricks and mortar, it was, it was very difficult to find books, even once you had discovered them. But you couldn't go on Amazon and type it in and all, all of a sudden discover everything she had written and, and, and like-minded authors and novelists and all of that like you can today. Um, I, I actually interview in my book uh, Congressman Justin Amash, who is, who is one of the, I think, one of the most principled um, fiscal conservatives, small libertarians, however you want to label him, in Congress. He's from Michigan. And he tells the story about how he got through high school and college and law school without hearing about any of these ideas. And that, that part of the story wouldn't shock you, but he was struggling to figure out why he didn't feel like he fit either with the Democratic Party or with the Republican establishment in, in his community. And so he typed what he was thinking into Google and suddenly discovered F.A. Hayek and proceeded to self-educate himself. I think that's happening writ large. And you see the the boomlet um, in people reading Ayn Rand, particularly young people, is very much driven by the Internet and their ability to sort of do an end run around the establishment and find good ideas for themselves. Well, that actually gets to one of the re- one of the other reasons I think young people haven't been engaged, and that's you know, Ayn Rand's really famous for helping people see free markets in a moral light, and that it's, a, you know, a free, what a free market does is recognize each individual as an end in himself, not a means to the ends of others. And if you look at the way in which we're taught to think about Medicare and Social Security, as well as Obamacare, it's not as a moral issue where one side is right and another is wrong. Everybody agrees that these are moral programs. The debate is just how do we make it sustainable? And then all the solutions are some form of, well, we're going to increase taxes on young people and we're going to lower their eventual be- benefits. And so it's if and there's no moral aspiration or moral idealism to fighting against these programs. Even if young people think, yeah, it's going to be bad for me, it's still like, why would I want to get involved in a crusade for you know these this political in the weeds uh, policy nitpicking? Yeah, and I think that's particularly true with young people today. Um, some people love to say that that young people today are apathetic, and I, I think that's exactly wrong. Um, they're definitely frustrated. They're they're pessimistic about their future. Um, part of it's because we haven't made those values based arguments as to why the government shouldn't be involved in certain parts of your life. Um, because I don't think, um, you know, I don't think most people think about the world in a, in a sort of cold calculating cost benefit kind of way. They're, they're thinking about things that really matter to them. First principles and, and, and even the, you know, the broader interests of our country and why it's so special. And, Today we can we can make those arguments and, and people can self-organize, and I think that's that's something we need to do. That that was really the the inspiration for for my writing, "Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff." Is that there is a brand new constituency of millions and millions of sets of eyeballs out there, 
and they're they're hungry for good ideas or they're hungry for those those values based arguments because they look at the current um, two party duopoly and they're 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 struggling to find any of that within the political system. Um, that's a burden uh, on you and I and and what what your organization does, what mine does, is they're they're out there um, and we gotta we gotta connect with them and we we gotta um, connect them with good ideas and and I would argue it's important to translate those ideas into plain English. Uh, we we love to use a lot of um, uh, jargon-laden language to explain what we're talking about, but when you really when you really boil it down, these are these are common sense values that have been part of the American experiment since day one. Well, I think one of the things I, I think you're absolutely right that one of the big barriers is that I think a lot of young people think even if I'm interested precisely because there is no constituency uh it seems out there for me and my ideas if they're free market oriented it can be a little bit dispiriting and so i mean as somebody who's been extraordinarily successful at advocating you know pretty strict free market views and yet uh i mean you're i think everybody in washington knows who you are do you have any advice for a young person who wants to actually speak out and be effective on fighting these issues yeah, I, th- I think two things. One, translate it into English. Um, we we can all quote from um, whether it be Atlas Shrugged or, or Human Action or you know any one of uh, one of the other really important books that that turned us on to these ideas. But of course, the genius of Ayn Rand is that she she didn't write a treatise on economics. She wrote a novel. She told a story, and she she made the ideas accessible to to people that that would have never picking up picked up a copy of human action but 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 they love the storytelling and 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 frankly the 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 translation of really fundamental values into um a romance novel um i think that's part of what we need to focus on of course when when she was writing um there was no internet there was no facebook there was no twitter and i think the the, the burden of, of really boiling down your message into um, simple statements that that are compelling is is important if you want to build a community around those ideas because if you want someone to read a book you should start with with a shorter conversation if you want someone to watch a movie you should start with a 30 second video um, pull them in the way that the same way that that anthem pulled me in it's an easy read i i didn't have to put it down um if you know arguably if i'd started with atlas it might have been more more intimidating um but it was it was simple it was straightforward and it was uh um, really compelling as a, as a simple explanation of, of the values of individualism so do you have a view though of what like what has to change or what specifically has to happen for it to become politically realistic to have real reforms on Medicare, Social Security, and Obamacare? You know, I think politics is a, is a lagging indicator of, of social change. And, and I think we have to start from the bottom up and we have to appreciate that the, 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 the audience for our ideas is almost suddenly multitudes bigger than we than we understood it to be 
um, because it wasn't. It's no longer the question of how many people can we get to read Atlas Shrugged and then and then um, take take those values and, and do something with that in the in the public square. Um, it's much bigger than that. Um, and I I I really think. Um, I mean, I'm a community organizer. We organize grassroots, and we 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 try to um, educate more and more people on these values. Um, and I think that if you create a constituency for freedom or for reforming entitlements or for getting away from this uh, um, robber baron kind of mentality in Washington, first thing you got to do is build a community that becomes a constituency that drives public opinion. It drives political outcomes. It drives the, the, the questions that are asked at town hall meetings. You know, fill in the blank. It starts with building that community and making sure that, that the ideas are right. It's interesting. I mean, you're definitely on the optimistic side, and, and I am too. But one of the things that I've noticed when I go around the country speaking about this is there'll often be a lot of agreement with the ideas, but a lot of defeatism. I mean, there was, you know, this was even most infamously built into Mitt Romney's 47% remark, where it was in effect, you know, half the country's basically already lost. What makes you optimistic? Well, I, I actually thought that that, and, and some people might disagree with me on this, and I would challenge you to think about it. I thought that, that, that Mitt Romney's comment was one of the more offensive things he said in that race. And I don't think it's as simple as arguing that there's it's 47 percent of the public is is in the big government camp because they, they receive government benefits. Because, you know, a lot of these programs we're talking about were not entered into voluntarily. You don't get a choice as to whether or not you pay the Social Security payroll tax. You, you don't get a choice as to whether or not you can opt out of the Medicare health care system. They, they make it. Um, virtually impossible, if not illegal, for providers and patients over 65 to actually um, transact. Um, so the, this, a lot of people have been forced into these programs, and I can tell you that a lot of a lot of uh, our constituents, our members, they're they're members of the 47 percent, and they're they're worried about something that's bigger than themselves are worried about their the opportunity of their children to live in a in a country that's free to actually um, define their own futures to to have have success to be anybody which is sort of that's the american dream is that anybody can do anything if they're willing to work for it um, and people see that slipping away um, I always think about uh, when when romney said that i thought about uh, eddie eddie willers from from Atlas, and, and there were a lot of characters in in Ayn Rand's novels that would have qualified as 47 percenters, and they were struggling to figure out what was happening to their country. And they, um, but the values, you know, hard work and individual responsibility, which I, I think is essentially boils a lot of Ayn Rand's practical philosophy in a nutshell. Um, there's something about America. We're we're almost genetically programmed to believe in liberty, and we just we need to we need to appreciate that. Um, you know, don't don't write off anybody. Um, let's let's reach out to people because right now, people are looking for answers. They're looking for an alternative to to what's going on in this country. It's a bigger opportunity than we have ever had before, and that's why I'm optimistic. 
Well, yeah, I want to highlight something you said that I think is really important. And it's actually been a theme, I think, of our conversation. And that is that, you know, the 47% treats us as in effect determined by our, you know, economics or by what our tax bill is. And what the truth is, is that what really is relevant is a person's ideas. And a person can have the view that liberty is important, hard work is important, responsibility is important, not reaching into other people's pockets is important, not, uh, you know, not hurting people and taking their stuff is important, as you put it, um, regardless of what their particular tax status is. And that it's those ideas you have to argue for and try to persuade people of. And I think one of the reasons that people are defeatists and, and they shouldn't be is that for them, it's not an issue of ideas. And part of what that means is that they take these views as obviously true rather than things that we have to work hard to argue for. It's in effect, if you don't already see that I'm right, I'm not going to bother trying to explain it to you. Whereas I think that w what you've talked about and certainly my view is that, um, no, there's reasons why people support the welfare state. There's reasons why people supported Obamacare. And that if we come out with better ideas, more clearly articulated, then there's no reason why in America, where there is that core commitment to freedom and the individual, that you can't see a significant change in a relatively short period of time. No, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I, always, I always argue that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I was organizing people to fight for liberty, in a lot of ways, I, I viewed it as, as um, a form of guerrilla warfare. There was a lot more of them than they than there were of us, and 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 the bad guys were better funded and and better positioned, and and we had to we had to beat them. In a lot of ways, the same way that that George Washington finally decided that going toe to toe with the British Army was a really bad strategy. Um, today, it's different because the 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 power has shifted because of the internet, because of social media, because of. Uh, the breakup of the, the media cartel, the old media cartel where Walter Cronkite used to literally tell us in half-hour segments every night, that's the way it is. Well, he doesn't get to tell us that anymore. Um, we have multiple sources of information, and that means that the insiders, the, the, the information hoarders, if you will, the people that, that knew something that the rest of us didn't know in real time, that advantage has, has evaporated. Um, that's the opportunity. I always wonder what would happen if Ayn Rand or Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson or James Madison or, or Lech Walesa of Solidarity, what would they have done with a Twitter account or the ability to live stream to millions of people um, effectively the way that Rand Paul did from the the Senate floor with his filibuster. I think it's a game changer. And I think we need to think long and hard about what we do with these new tools. Well, as we wrap up then, what uh, what did you learn writing your book and trying to present your ideas in kind of d to a large audience that you think others could uh, benefit from? Well, the, so the, the, the chapter that was most diff difficult to write was the first chapter. And I... I, I really struggled with it because I wanted to, um, you know, I, I boldly set out to try to translate a very vast set of ideas and thinking and, and writings from, from really smart people um, and translate it down to 
basic common sense principles. And it was uh, it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. But I, I came up with um, six rules for liberty. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Take responsibility. Work for it. Mind your own business and fight the power. And I'm sure that I, I forgot really, really important things and I'm, I'm overly simplifying everything. But but I wanted to, to come up with um, basically common values that, that don't divide us as as the American people, but are things that we would all generally nod our head and say, yeah, those are those are exactly how you should live your life. And then explain to people the deeper um, meaning behind that. Um, it it's it's tough to translate it down, and I, I suspect um, having written three books, um, I got to believe that it's far more difficult to write a compelling story like a novel, like Ayn Rand did, than it is to write a, a treatise on economics. I think I think that's part of the project that we all need to embrace is how do we how do we communicate with people like you were saying earlier how do we communicate with people who don't think they agree with us but if you really spend some time with them they would discover that that they probably share a lot of the same values matt how can people follow your work um i'm on twitter at mkibby um and and more importantly you can come to freedomworks.org or come to our Facebook page. And please, uh, if, if you're interested, check out a copy of my new book, Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. It's, it should be available at any respectable bookseller. My guest today has been Matt Kibbe. Matt, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. So I want to come back to this issue of why young people are not really treating this issue, the issue of the welfare state and the welfare state crisis as something to crusade for. And in essence, as I tried to indicate during the interview with Matt, my view is that whatever they think of the welfare state crisis and its effect on them and their lives, they still believe and they've been taught, including by people who warn about the crisis, that the welfare state itself is moral. And at the end of the day, if the welfare state is moral, then a person, a good person, idealistic person, doesn't want to be crusading against that which he regards as good. And this is why Ayn Rand is really the key figure here, because she's the only person who, and the only thinker who really gets to the fundamental issue of what makes the welfare state immoral, immoral in its very essence. And I would summarize it this way, that what's good in life is being dedicated to achieving the best in your life and that that fundamental requirement of doing that requires thinking about what you value and how to achieve it. And so just to give a, I mean, a kind of simple, straightforward example, what do you want out of a career and what do you want to do with the money you earn for that career? Do you want to save a lot of it? Do you want to invest a lot of it? What kind of retirement do you want after your career? Do you want 10, 20, 30 years uh, to a freedom to travel the world or to try a new career, or do you want to work as long as you can? All of those assessments an individual has to make. And what the welfare state does is says, no, you don't get to make those kinds of assessments in your life. You're going to be put into a bureaucratic collectivist system in which huge portions of your money are going to be taken from you 
in order to do what we regard in the public interest. And so if we say that it's better for you to save, then you have to save. If we say that it's better for you to buy health insurance and we're going to tell you what uh, that health insurance covers and so on, then that's what you're going to do. If we say that your fundamental obligation is to hand a bunch of the money that you earn over to other people to pay for their retirement or health care needs, then that's what's right. And so what the welfare state really is, is the complete obliteration or partial obliteration of the individual's freedom to plan and live his own life. In short, to pursue his happiness. That that's what makes it wrong and that that's what makes it vicious. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 